You are listening to a special From the Archives edition of The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. In addition to our weekly series, which brings you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers, each month we present a selection from our archives. Woody Allen's latest film, Cafe Society, had its world premiere at Cannes this month. So we're looking back at a memorable evening with the iconic filmmaker from 2005. The event took place just before the release of his critically acclaimed drama, Match Point. And in addition to discussing that film, Allen talked about his creative process in general, including his approach to writing, casting, and directing actors. The conversation was moderated by the Film Society's Wendy Keys. Let's go to that now. Woody, great. Um, let's begin at the beginning. Where do your ideas come from? Books, films, your own imagination, your own life experiences? Where do they come from generally? Uh, they just come, um, <laughs> you know, sp- spontaneously for the most part. I mean, I, I just was lucky that um, I get a number of ideas and some of them make good films and some of them don't, but, you know, the ideas just seem to flow. They always did when I started, and uh, they still do, you know. Um, And as I say, they're not all great or even good, but they're there, and and I do, you know, I don't have a problem with, um, you know, being prolific, that's, that's, that's not my problem. I have many problems, <laughs> but that's not one of them. How do you begin, begin your... Can't hear you, the microphone is uh, making is, you sound okay. dull. Is this better? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, how do you begin your writing process? How do I begin? Yeah. You know, I'm a little hard of hearing, it's my one flaw. <laughs> uh, so, so I can't always pick up on it. Um, I begin writing... Uh, you know, I, I finish a film and, and hang around for a couple of days and, uh, and then I just take a walk or I'm in my bedroom and, uh, this, and, I, and, and I start to think about what I want to do next and sometimes I go to my drawer and I have some notes on, you know, pieces of paper or... Uh, napkins or matchbook covers or that, I, that have occurred to me during the year and I look at them and some of them seem like they would be good and some of them just seem great when I wrote them but are not really great and, um, and then I start to think about one particular idea that happens to interest me above the others at the time and I start to develop it. I start to think about it and think about it and see if it goes any place. And if it does, then eventually, I, I, you know, if it holds up, I write it. Is it part of the work that you enjoy, the writing part of it? Say that again? Do you enjoy that part of it, the, the writing? It's fun to write for me because uh, it's the most enjoyable part of the film because you, you don't have to... Uh, meet the test of reality. You know, you're in your bedroom, which is where I write, or whatever room you may choose, and I write in my bedroom, and, um, you know, and everything is great in the bedroom. You know, the ideas 
are fabulous, and they, they, every movie appears like it's going to be the next Citizen Kane, and everything is magical and it just works perfectly. And then when you have to make it into a movie, it becomes more difficult, and you get out in the real world, and you've got to find the right actors, and uh, everything you thought was so great when you were writing is not so great, and um, you make a lot of mistakes when you make the film, at least I do. And so once you're out in the, on the street and it's freezing cold at 7 o'clock in the morning and you're trying to get a scene and it's not really working and the actor doesn't get it and the, there's noise because there are too many jet planes above and um, it's a far cry from the loveliness of being in your own home in your own bedroom, on your own schedule, uh, writing. Actors are dying to work with you. What is the particular kind of rapport that you establish with them? You know, actors are always saying in interviews that I don't talk to them. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not a great social person in general. I'm awkward socially and, and I don't enjoy it. So when I interview actors for a job, I keep it down to uh, an almost surreal minimum. You know, <laughs> they come in and I say to them, I'm doing a film in the summer or in the fall, and my casting director, Julia Taylor, thought you might be right for one of these parts, and I just wanted to meet you and say hello. You know, don't sit down. And, <laughs> and you know, I think they're happy. I think they're, they're glad to have such a brief encounter. And, and so they leave, and I know they can act because I see videotapes of them and I see films of them. And if they just appear as they, in person, as they appear on film, I mean, no, they haven't gained 300 pounds or something, then I hire them. And I'm almost always safe in hiring them and correct. You know, once in a while I strike out that way, but rarely. And then when I hire them, I give them, uh, if it's a big part, I mean if it's a, a major part, I give them the whole script. If it's not, I give them their part. And if they have any questions, when I give it to them, they can ask me. But most of the time, they have nothing. They say, yes, I want to do this. Uh, I like it. It's funny. or I, it's, uh, I, I think I could be great with this. And so I don't say anything to them. <laughs> you know, because they're wonderful actors and actresses to begin with, and I don't want to get all over them and kill them, you know. Uh, you know, over the years, I mean, I, I found myself, I'm working with you know, Geraldine Page and Gene Hackman and, you know, these enormously gifted people. So I have nothing to add to, to anything. So I just don't want to mess them up, is what it is. So I don't speak to my actors much at all. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The actor goes home thinking, he didn't speak to me, I'm doing something wrong. But it's just the opposite of that. It's that I don't speak to them because they don't need to be spoken to. They're great. You know, they come out and they, they go where I tell them to go. And they're fabulous. They act. They're convincing. They're emotional. They're 
wonderful. And so I, I have nothing to say to them. Once in a great while, I'll have to say, you know, uh, do a little less or a little louder or a little faster, some innocuous kind of thing. But very rarely do I have to say anything. And so I don't say anything to them. And I also have a very liberal view of the way they treat the script. Despite the fact that I wrote the material, I have great faith in the actor's instincts. So I always tell the actors, this is the script, but if there's anything you want to change, if you don't like these speeches, if you want to add to them or subtract from them or put it in your own words, go ahead. It's no problem for me at all. You do not have to respect the script in any way. And I let them roam freely, and they're fabulous. And if somebody makes an egregious mistake, I mean, if they really don't get it right, or they ad-lib something that's really horrendous, I tell them. But apart from that, you know, I, I try and I'm a minimalist. Apparently, some of the actors fear that they may be fired in the course of making the film. Has that happened? Which, of course, increases their intensity of the, you know, of the of the shoot and the experience for them. Have you fired people in mid shoot? Yes, I have, but it's a last horrible resort. Anytime I've fired somebody, it's really been because I've screwed up in the casting. The people that come in to audition are very, very good professionals. Sometimes I blow it in the casting and I hire somebody that, and I'm not seeing something, I make a mistake. For some reason, I've blown it. And then the person does the part and I don't know what to do because they, they don't get it. And so I go up to them and then I do take them aside and very nicely speak to them and try and get them to understand what I want. And I go again, and if they still don't get it, I have this incredibly transparent trick that I use where I say, let me see the script for a second. And I go over and I say, uh, let me check this out for a minute. What happens here? And I start to read the script out loud myself as though I'm reading it for some other reason. <laughs> and I'm hoping that they listen to me and overhear me, and they hear how the scene should be read. And once in a while, that will work. But if it doesn't, and I can't get them to do it uh, after several days, then I have no choice. I can either wind up with a bad performance or replace them. So I replace them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You, you began as a stand-up comedian, as did Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Albert Brooks, and others. Did that experience of being a, a comedian in front of a live audience help your, uh, your film work in any way? Did it influence your work at all? Uh, no, not really. Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to be a, a, a stand-up comedian, to work in front of an audience, is of all the things that I've experienced in show business, and I've done, I think, almost all of the things, it's the most harrowing and frightening thing. Um, acting in a film doesn't require any nerves at all. You know, you're acting for a camera, and, and there's, there's nothing to that. Um, acting on stage 
was never a problem. I could, um, you know, the curtain could be down and we could all have our places. I'd be on stage with Diane Keaton and Tony Roberts and I'd be eating a corned beef sandwich quickly because I was starved and they would say, hurry up, the curtain's going up and I would finish it, you know, no nerves whatsoever. The curtain would go up and, and, and I'd get right into it. But before I went out on stage to communicate as myself with an audience, I was scared. And um, it's, I just found that to be a frightening thing. And so everything else, filmmaking is what you were talking about, is a piece of cake compared to working in a cabaret or working, if I was working in this room, I, I have appeared at Lincoln Center, uh, you know, working live for an audience as yourself, whatever psychological meaning that has, it's a very, very nerve-wracking thing. At least I found it very nerve-wracking. You have a very strong visual sense. Um, Scarlett Johansson in Matchpoint said that you were very, very involved in her costumes and hairdos. Do you work closely with your production designers and costume designers? Uh, I do. I, I work very closely with everybody connected with the movie because, you know, I, I think this comes from being the writer. I have a vision that I want to execute on the screen. And, you know, it, I want to see the people costume the way I want and the hair the way I want and, and made up the way. You know, it's very, very important for me to see what I want to see up there. And so uh, I get involved in it, uh, you know, very deeply. Uh, the beginnings of your films are very often very arresting, and Matchpoint is no exception. Do you, uh, do, do you take special care in, in the impact of your first shots? Yes. Uh, you, you know, your sense of drama always uh, kind of pushes you to, to try and do something special in your opening and your closing. You know, you try... There are moments that cry out for... Um, some kind of theatricality, and and I've done that a lot over the years. I've I've had tried to open with a flourish, and close with some kind of you know way that doesn't ruin the movie retroactively. <laughs> I th I think those those opening moments are particularly effective because. They follow your, your very no-frills, black-and-white titles that you've been using consistently over the years. Is that sort of a conscious thing, is to have the, the, the sort of the cut-and-dried titles before you, you sort of pull the curtain up? Well, when I started making films, um, titles got to be such a big thing. You know, the, the people were... It was the era of the Pink Panther... And there were these enormous graphics, and people were spending a fortune on graphics, and the graphics were sometimes better than the film that followed it, and they were very, very elaborate. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to spend the money. I didn't have the money. I wanted to just announce the film and move on. I didn't want to make a big deal out of the graphics of the film. So, so as soon as I could, my first couple of films, I was straddling two fences there and I was, I still had one foot in what everybody else was doing. But once I did it with plain black and white graphics 
I never deviated from that because it's quick, fast, you don't have to think about it, inexpensive, and it's not the movie, it's the, you know, the writing before the movie. Yeah, works well for you. Tell us a little bit about the music. You've sometimes, very rarely, had scored um, tracks, but most often it seems to be records from your own, music from your own record collection. Is that expensive to get the rights and to... To do it that way. <clears throat> yes, it's expensive and irrational because, um, <laughs> because you know, I've always used very well-known things, Gershwin, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, uh, jazz people, classical people, and you have to pay for the rights to the thing and you have to pay the musician. So if it's, you know, I don't know, the any Goodman band, you know, all those guys have to be paid and the person who wrote the song has to be paid and the person who owns the record company like Columbia or something has got to be paid. For, and the prices of the recordings, the rights to the recordings jump irrationally. So you can get one song, you know, that's a very popular classic song by, I don't know, by Cole Porter that's, um, you know... $2,000 for the rights to it. And the next song in the catalog is $50,000 or something to get the rights to it. It's, just, it's all over the place. So at the end of my films, I've always had a very expensive music budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes the front office will call me and say, can you substitute for this film, for this uh, song, because it's really you know, just too much money to, to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you once said that Dustin Hoffman could have played any part that you played in your movies, and perhaps better. That's what you said. Would you ever consider casting him? Uh, yeah, I did consider casting, but he was never available. Uh, you know, I, I called him once or twice. I, I know him, and um, I wanted him to play uh, deconstructing Harry, and I wanted him to play uh, and Hannah and her sisters. And um, but he was not available. I I, I, I couldn't get. Him. He you know he's one of a number of people. I I only cast myself when there's a role for me, and I can't get somebody else. And usually it's hard. You know these are terrific actors like Dustin. You know who are in demand, and they're not just waiting around for me to call them. They they have projects. You know so. So I, I couldn't, but, but I think that's true. I think there have been a number of films that I played that any number of actors, um, he's one of them, but there's any number of them, could have played at the minimum as well as me and really, if I'm honest, much better. You had a very unique and special a- arrangement with Arthur Krim and United Artists. Can you imagine ever repeating that kind of relationship with a studio again? I can't. I, I, I've been very lucky. I lucked into a relationship with uh, United Artists, and Arthur Krim at the time was the head of United Artists. And he, he, people used to think I was making films on a grant almost. Uh, it, it was amazing. I, I've been very lucky. I've, I've never had to um, show anybody my scripts or tell anybody who I was casting or... Uh, you know, no one could see dailies. No, I always had final cut. You know, from my second film on, and this was because um, Arthur was unique and very, very 
uh, enlightened and very, very sensitive to the artist's needs. And, um, you know, so I've been, I've often said that the only thing standing between me and greatness was me, you know? <laughs> you know, there, there was no, no reason for me ever to make a film that wasn't great, and yet I've made so many, <laughs> you know? Did you have any budget limitations in your career that may have thwarted your vision somehow? Yes, I've think? always had budget limitations. You know, for that freedom, uh, you, uh, I could never make a film that was very expensive at all. A match point was about $15 million, which is nothing in today's market. I think I read in the Times today that King Kong was $207 million or something. Um, I've always worked on a very low budget, and uh, I have often sacrificed my own salary for the picture. If the picture came out rotten and I needed to reshoot another two weeks, it was, you know, I, I would give back my salary or part of it or all of it if necessary. And so uh, I've always had financial limitations on all my films. Uh, they've been made for very very small budgets, comparatively. There have been filmmakers who have influenced you in the past. Do you, do you begin a film and consciously say to yourself, this will be an homage to, say, Bob Hope or Fellini or Murnau, or do these influences just sort of seep through? No, I've never done it consciously. Uh, I, I've done films that, where I've, I've been so affectionate to certain filmmakers over the years and so uh, adoring that, you know, it creeps into you. It's like a musician who always listens to Charlie Parker or, or, you know, Bud Powell or something, and when they play, you can't help. The influence is just there, and that's happened to me. I've never done it consciously, but I've, I have, you know, my anxiety of influence has been strong, on, with certain filmmakers who have just crept into my the marrow of my feeble spirit. Speaking of your well, not feeble spirit, but you you are a, sort of an alleged pessimist, and I have to say that there's many moments of great sweetness and tenderness in your films, and I think of your smile at the end of Manhattan and the pleasure you take in watching Charlotte Rampling read a book on the floor, and your kisses with Diane Weist at the end of Hannah and her sisters. Are, are these sort of cooked up happy endings, or do you really feel that there is some hope and affirmation in our hostile universe? Uh, <laughs> I'm not, you know, <laughs> this is going to turn you all off. <laughs> I think there are small oases, moments of respite, where we forget for the moment, um, we're distracted from the abysmal nightmare <laughs> that human existence is. Uh, and we do everything we can, you know, to, to try and find little moments where we can Get a get a you know the, when when I was a kid, 
life was so grim, you know, I'd duck into the movies, and there would be Fred Astaire dancing, and I would be watching for an hour and a half, and everything would be unreal. Everyone had, you know, tuxedos and white telephones, and the women were all beautiful, and it was great. And then I'd go back out, and there was the real world, uh, and... I think we all find these little moments here and there to try and get breathing space, like a cold drink of water on a hot day. But uh, I don't have a good feeling about uh, anything at all. (laughs) I mean, it's obvious to say that death is obviously a prevalent theme in your films and you've dealt with it philosophically and theologically and comedically. But you once said that you were looking for the perfect poetic metaphor for death. Is that still a quest for you? Well, you'd like to try and find something to express your feelings. That's why I was so always taken with Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, because I thought he really nailed it. He really nailed uh, one's innermost terrors about mortality in that film and he did it in a way that was vastly entertaining it wasn't um, cerebral homework you were not in a movie house and you were watching a thesis film and you were watching something that was didactic or 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 you know you were watch you were being entertained it was show business in a certain way and he was giving you the most talking about the most profound terrors that human beings have. And so I've always thought that he got the good one, and there's not another one out there to get. Um, But I have thought about it a lot and have tried. I just was never able to to do it. I'm sure you'll find the way. want to talk a little bit about Match Point. We have horrifyingly little time left. And there's one thing that, that struck me was the incredible chemistry between your lead actors, Jonathan Rice Myers and Scarlett Johansson. Is there a way that you can predetermine chemistry between actors in the casting process? Uh, yes, but Jonathan Rhys Myers and Scarlett, as you see, when you see that, that's not chemistry, it's physics. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> They are combustible together. I mean, it's really... Uh, and, I, and, and that was from the casting. I saw this guy in Bend It Like Beckham, and I thought he was just hot and <laughs> fabulous. And he, just, and, and he is a, a, a wonderful young kid who um, is full of emotion and turbulence and torture and you know the guy goes to get the newspapers and it's a tragedy you know I mean he, he's such a wonderful he's so full of suffering and he communicates that so readily and Scarlett was 19 when she did this film which is hard to believe and she's just you know adorable and sexy and gifted and uh, you know a, a dream girl and and I knew the two of them together would be just absolutely hot, and they are. And, and, and I don't usually speak fondly of my own films. I don't do it out of modesty or conviction that many of them have come out well. But this one came out very well, and Scarlett and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers are a very hot team together, as you'll see. They are. 
Mm -hmm. you, you've made a second film with Scarlett Johansson in London. Mm -hmm. What status is that at this point? I made another film with Scarlett this past summer called Scoop. It's, a, it's totally unlike this film because I noticed on my first film that Scarlett was very funny. Now, in this film, she's not funny. It's a serious film. But um, I noticed Scarlett was really very witty, very funny, and very quick. And so I thought she'd be good to do a comedy with. So I wrote a film called Scoop about uh, a, a high school uh, college journalist who was vacationing in London and gets involved in a kind of mystery and tries to break the story uh, as a journalist, a kind of inept journalist, but a journalist. And uh, I play in it. I, I play a seedy uh, show business magician who's over there, who helps her. Um, and Hugh Jackman, she falls in love with, and the two of them are a very good combination as well. And Ian McShane... Um, is the, the the real journalist in it. And it's a very, very light comedy. I would almost use the word trivial. Um, <laughs> but if you're in the mood, you know, to be entertained and you get with it, you know, if you don't get with it, it's death. But <laughs> if, you, if you get with it, you know, it can be funny. I mean, if you think I'm funny in it, you'll think it's funny, because she's funny. Um, and I'm in there trying hard to be funny. She does it effortlessly. This is the story of my life. I used to write these films all the time for myself and Diane Keaton, and I'd give myself 200 jokes to do in the film, and Keaton would come in, and she'd have no jokes to do, and when the film was over, she was always the funny one. <laughs> That's happened here as well. I have all the jokes, but Scarlett is the funny one in the movie. Well, you obviously have very good experiences with both of the films in London, and we hope you come back to New York soon. We miss you already, and thank you so much for being here. I can't believe how short this has been. Oh, but it is great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>